The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Good Night Maryland Radio with your host, Nina Bosky. It's been more than 50 years since the tragic death of one of Hollywood's biggest stars at the time and in history, Marilyn Monroe. Nina seeks to uncover the life and death of this legendary star as it coincides with the pre-production of the feature film, Good Night, Marilyn. You'll get a chance to question, explore, and discover the secrets surrounding what really happened that fateful night back in 1962. Let's start the conversation. Here is the host of Good Night, Marilyn Radio, Nina Bosky. Hi, everybody. I'm Nina Bosky for Goodnight Maryland Radio Season 2, and welcome to the show as we explore the investigation, the life, and the movie all surrounding Marilyn Monroe. Well, we've got some shout-outs. We've got Jeff in Melbourne, Australia, Merlin in New Jersey, Emily in Cleveland, Ohio, Derek in Albany, Texas, Sean in Scotland, Lisa in Birmingham, England, Denise from Temecula, California. Hello, good night, Maryland fans, as we are growing around the world each and every day. And it's because of you and this story that we're shedding some great light on the mystery that's been haunting us for nearly 53 years. Well, we are in season two. It uh, We're talking about Maryland's last day, and we'll be talking about Eunice Murray and how her inconsistencies relate to that last day and really how she is the only person who was with Marilyn the entire day of that last day of her life. So also like to thank Drew Masters, our talent booker, Mike Surgit, our engineer, and Rando Libero, who will be joining us at some point during the hour, our executive producer. Also, we have a special guest has a new book out around Maryland, something that has never been done before. Emmanuel Emmanuel is a published author and artist of Color Me Maryland. It's a sophisticated classic coffee table book that is chronically follows her career through her renderings of uh, through his renderings of Marilyn that you may choose to color or not you might just like it as a as a book on your on your shelf for your coffee table and he has been a collector of Marilyn's photos books magazines and posters all of his life well before we have a manual on the show we will have I have just have several announcements this July 31st next month we will be airing a special live show for from the Formosa Cafe, as we will uh, all share in an experience, uh, you know, as we did on her birthday, we decided to come back and honor Marilyn, and we have some surprise guests as we celebrate Marilyn and her life but also Old Hollywood. I also want to join, uh, have you guys, uh, if you'd like to join our general um, uh, community on the Goodnight Maryland uh, site, go to goodnightmaryland.com and check out what we're doing. Also, there's time for you to submit the audition for the role of Marilyn. You have until June 30th, since our director is off in Budapest. And uh, so that, if you 
would like to to submit, resubmit your bio, headshot, and short video of yourself. You may just be able to have your dream come true, just like Marilyn. But I must add, you gotta you gotta be able to act like Marilyn, have those acting chops, and be able to embody her from the inside and out. It's not just about mimicking the character of Marilyn in her in her movies. So that's going to be really, really important. So on that note, let's bring Emmanuel on. Thank you for joining us on the Goodnight Marilyn Show. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us a little bit about uh, your, first before we get into the book, your love for Marilyn and uh, how this came about. Because I always like to know how people uh, get interested in Marilyn Monroe. Well, my love for Marilyn started when I was exactly five years old, and my mother took me to the movie theater to see two films. At that time, there were always two movies showing. One was The Shaggy Dog with Disney. The other one was Some Like It Hot. Oh, I love that. Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, and Jack Lemmon. Well, me personally, back in 1959, that movie was way advanced, way ahead of its time. And to bring a five-year-old to see something like that, I don't know what my mother wasn't thinking because there was a lot of sex and all that going on in that movie for that period. And when Marilyn came out on the screen, and I remember sitting in the dark theater, we stood in line like for three blocks to get in. It was downtown in Milwaukee. And I sat there, and then when Marilyn came on, I, my eyes just popped out. You know, the, it was done and filmed in black and white, and the hair was glowing in the dark white, and she had on this flimsy nightgown and big busts and big hips and just very voluptuous and zoftic looking. And I looked at the screen and saw that. And then I looked at my mother, who was a very plain woman, very plain. And I couldn't connect the two. And, and all of a sudden I thought, I like this. You know, I like the way Marilyn looks. And that was my love for Marilyn right then and there. And then I started collecting pictures of her and other movie stars because I used to sit on the porch and cut out from old fan magazines that used to be around. And I'd file them away. And then before you know it, I'd start reading things on her as I grew older, and um, everything so just kind of like took off from there. So how did the book come about, and what is it, you know, when somebody would purchase this, and you could purchase it on Amazon.com, how, would, uh, how did this come about? Why did you come up with this idea specifically? Actually, I would always say that it was a divine inspiration. It just came into my mind, and I just kind of followed my inner voice that was telling me what to do. And it said, there's never been a coloring book done on Marilyn Monroe before. Why don't you do a coloring book? Keep it simple, but have it um, detailed enough that it's, it doesn't look like a child's book. It's more of a sophisticated fine art book. And then I came up with Color Me Marilyn, and it chronologically uh, follows her career through the pictures and the drawings that I've rendered from wow. skills that I have and things like that in my collection. So what has been the response? I know you've been getting a lot of response out there. Well, Running Press published it, and it was published worldwide, and they have it on the web, and you can order it through Amazon.com, or companies could probably call uh, Running Press themselves direct. And Color Me Maryland is just a perfect gift. It's a very good gift item. It's always a hit at every party if someone brings it along as a, a, a gift. And... You just follow her career through the pictures that I drew, like portraits and pinups and scenes from her films. And then I put in their news events, like the President Kennedy singing to him and different publicity shots, press conference for Prince and the Showgirl. 
and it's, it's, a, it's a very informative book. It enlightens and it entertains you at the same time, and you learn something. I have little facts under the pictures. Well, that's, page, that's always... a 64-page book of the drawings. Well, and as, a, as it's not just for necessarily kids, it's for adults too, and you don't have to color in it. You can keep it as it is because it is a fine art book. Uh, again, it is Color Me Marilyn. You can, uh, you can purchase it on Amazon.com. What a wonderful idea. And Emmanuel, Emmanuel, thanks for sharing your book and your love for Marilyn with us today. Yes. Hope to see you at the event on uh, July 31st when we're going to do a live radio show from the Formosa Cafe. So talk about some stories that came out of Formosa, not just with Marilyn, but the other, uh, you know, lovely, uh, glamorous, uh, you know, Hollywood uh, stars from years gone by. So and it was thanks. fun standing with you on the red carpet. We almost matched. Yeah, yeah. And on the again. red pants that matched your dress. Yeah, color me Nina. <laughs> and color me Emmanuel. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show today. Thank you. All right. You're listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. I'm your host, Nina Bosky. And uh, now we are going to move into where we were last week when we left off. We left off about the 9 o'clock hour, so we didn't get very far. We went from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, so not too far. But uh, with us is uh, joining joining us this week is licensed mental health counselor and best-selling author Gary Vitaco Robles, icon, the Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe, Volumes 1 and 2. And I just want to point out again, I've said this from time to time on the radio show, but if you're looking for a really thorough bio that's accurate in, in regards to Marilyn's life and and, and and written with a lot of compassion, I highly recommend Icon, The Life, The Times, and Films of Marilyn Monroe, Volumes 1 and 2. So I um, just want to highlight that again. Immortal Marilyn, we have Leslie Kasperowitz with us, who has been with Immortal Marilyn since 1998 and has been studying her for over 25 years. So on that note, let's uh, get to the panel and let's, uh, let's start to rock with this uh, wonderful... Uh, topic today of the last uh, day of Marilyn Monroe's life and Eunice Murray as uh, what is her connection. Hi guys, welcome to the show again. Hi Nina. Hi Nina, thanks for having us. Yeah, well, you know, this is an interesting, you know, connection. Uh, I'll start with you, Leslie. What do you think the connection, uh, you know, how Eunice Murray plays into this last day? What are your thoughts about her just in general? Oh, well, Eunice Murray is um, the one person who was there the entire day. She is the person who would have known who came and went from the house and at what time. She should be the person who would be rock solid, I would think, on the, those sorts of details and who was there and who wasn't. And unfortunately, she changed her story many times over the years, which has created a lot of the confusion and kind of opened the door for a lot of the conspiracy theories. So while a lot of people see that as being sinister in some way, I I personally don't necessarily think she's a sinister figure, um, but I think that the result of her ever-changing story um, has been opening that door and allowing all of these conspiracy theories to kind of bloom in those, those holes in the story. All right, and we're going to get to what her official story was, and then we'll get to some of the, to the other, how she changed it. Gary, what are your thoughts? Well, she wasn't really qualified to have the role in Marilyn's life that uh, Dr. Greenson gave her. You know, we had some talk last week about her being uh, touted as a psychiatric nurse, and she was not that. In fact, she had abandoned her education before she turned 16. 
And so she, she did not have the education to become any kind of a, a psychiatric uh, assistant. But she was, she was tied to Greenson because she had been the owner of his home, and he placed her um, in the homes of his most severe patients to be a sort of uh, caregiver monitor. Um, but she had very uh, little experience and no education to provide those kinds of services. Which is really interesting that somebody of his caliber would actually hire somebody like that to be treating people with these severe issues. I mean, Gary, I know you could probably talk to that being in the mental health profession yourself, right? Well, Marilyn, had, you know, when, when Eunice was linked to Marilyn in November of 61, Marilyn had come out of a, of a year where she had been seriously depressed. She went through a major episode um, again in September of 61, and um, it was the doctor who, who recommended to Marilyn that she hire her. And his real goal was to have someone in the home monitoring her and to also report back to him and really to assist Marilyn in laying down roots and, and grounding herself through the purchase of a home. That's really what his recommendation was. He believed that a home would take the place of a husband and a child, which uh, Marilyn did not have. And Eunice was kind of obsessed with having to lose her own home due to financial reasons to Dr. Greenson. And so in a sense, she was me- meeting her own needs and helping Marilyn um, create this, this home life, um, which she had never um, fulfilled in her own life. Okay, so here's, here's the thing that always strikes me. And we talked about it, and we touched on it last week, and then we had to close, right? is here's this woman who is doesn't necessarily um, stay at Marilyn's house, right? So this yeah. is a special time of that day that she's being asked to stay over, okay? Because there's a little bit of a worried and I just want to make sure she's okay, right? Yes. So how is it, and we talked about this last week, but I just, it's still just, something about it doesn't sit well with me, that the lawyer calls Eunice Murray, to check on her, right? Eunice goes and looks at uh, Marilyn's door. The light's on and the, the telephone cord is underneath, right? And she assumes that she's okay. How is it that somebody just assumes when you're being asked to stay overnight and to check on somebody? That, to me, just, I don't buy it. I really don't buy it. Leslie, first you, what do you say to that? Well, you know, and there's some interesting confusion on that, even that simple detail of the night. Uh, in 1973, when Eunice Murray gave an interview to the Ladies' Home Journal, she um, said a few things that were slightly different. One of the things she stated was that not that she was not asked to spend the night, but that Greenson asked her if she was spending the night, which was kind of hinting that it wasn't a big deal and uh, it was just a random question as to whether or not she was planning to stay. Um, also in that interview, she states that when she gets the phone call from Milton Rudin, that um, the, there was no real concern raised. She states that she was asked if Marilyn was home and replied that, yes, she was indeed at home and asked if she should call Marilyn to the phone and was told, no, don't bother. So um, if it. that's true, if the phone call was not raising the alarm in, in the way that we see it nowadays, you know, in hindsight, uh, it's possible that she really didn't think that there was a matter for concern. Um, then again, it's also possible that she's changing her story for other reasons at this point, uh, 
possibly to, you know, hide the fact that she maybe made a mistake in not checking on Marilyn. Yeah, I mean, because her official story was that she went to the door and uh, she saw the light on. Is there anything more to because that's because if that is indeed true, what you just said, right, that would make more sense. It doesn't make sense in terms of her official version. So, Gary, uh, would you like to add to that? No, I think that Leslie pretty much nails it in that um, Rudin was very vague in, in what he was asking of her. And in, in Eunice's perception was the psychiatrist had already left. And if we are to believe her version, that there were no other concerns. Marilyn took a phone call from Joe DiMaggio Jr. and um, seemed fine at, at that point and retired to bed. Um, I've, I've heard some... Um, changes even in the the time frame of Rudin's call you know he and the others involved told the police it was you know closer to between 8:30 and 9 o'clock over the years i don't know if her memory uh, wavered on this but i've i've heard her say uh, also between 9:30 and 10 o'clock possibly was his call so yeah. um not not quite sure i mean at at that point Marilyn would already have been gone even if she had checked on her and how old was Eunice Murray at the time? Do we know how old she, she was? She was born when she... in 1902, so she, I don't know when her, her birthday was, but she was 59 or, or 60. Got it. So she, uh, you know, she, she still could have had, I mean, she wasn't like she was later in life where she might have been losing her memory a little bit, uh, so she should have had an accurate uh, account at that time, you know, given the fact that she understood, you know, her memory was intact. It sounds like as time went on, her memory was fading or she just seemed a little bit more vague in her answers. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but in listening to her later and, you know, um, uh, in uh, Anthony Summers, you know, say goodbye to the president, it seems like she's just a little bit more vague in terms of her answers. Uh, How do you guys feel about what I just said? She seems less lucid and now like uh, almost 30 years had passed. Yeah, yeah. So, and you look at a lot of the major changes in her story did take place in in the later years. Um, and there's also some question, a, a very strong question, as to how "Say Goodbye to the President" was edited um, very carefully to make her answers fit what they were trying to present in that documentary, which was that there had been foul play that night. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, too, and I want to bring that up as we come back from the break, and we have to take a short break. I'd like to play that first clip of how she officially said uh, what happened and what she did uh, that night, the day Marilyn died. And we will uh, take a short break, go into this clip, and we'll be back with our panel in just a moment. I couldn't, as a layman, couldn't describe her as depressed. But I know she had many worries and... This particular day, she was not lively and enthusiastic. She was very quiet. And she had told me that one of the very first things to warn me, that if she takes sedation, which she did every night, sometimes she's apt to forget and would take a second dose too soon. And this is what she had to be very careful about. So that was the first thing that I was concerned about after she uh, she died that that probably had happened when she went to the telephone. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Math Genius Radio presents Marilyn. For those of us who can't get enough of Marilyn Monroe, especially her iconic musical performances, Mad Genius Radio has expertly curated a genre of hundreds of tracks performed by Marilyn and friends. It is the quintessential collection of music for a journey of glamour, grace, and allure. Listen for free only on Mad Genius Radio. Available in the App Store, Google Play, and desktop at madgeniusradio.com. Hi, my name is Nina Bosky, and I'm the lead producer on the feature film Goodnight, Marilyn. Do you have what it takes to play the iconic Marilyn Monroe? Well, I have our director here with us, Drew Ann Rosenberg, and she's going to tell you exactly what she's looking for. Drew? Well, first of all, we're looking for somebody with great acting chops, and then we want a Marilyn who can bring that movie star sex symbol magnetism to screen. But there's another side of Marilyn that we want to find. We want to find the shy, sensitive, um, very personal, and, and twinkly girl who everybody loved on a private level as well. So if you have those two sides to you, you might just be our Marilyn. So if you have what it takes or you know somebody that does, go to goodnightmarilyn.com and find out all the details. That's goodnightmarilyn.com, and hopefully we'll see you in the movies. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to MarilynLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Hi, everybody. You are listening to Goodnight Marilyn Radio. I'm your host, Nina Bosky. It's like oh, I'm getting notes left and right here. Our panel is Leslie Kasperowitz from Immortal uh, Marilyn. We also have Gary Vitaco Robles. He's the best-selling author of Icon, The Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. Excited to have you guys here. You know, just before the break, we were talking about uh, Eunice Murray and her role and what she plays in uh, Marilyn's life and her death. And and, uh, you know, uh, Leslie, you were going to talk and tell us a little bit about the kind of the breakdown of what her different versions are and kind of how that happened. So let's start with that. Sure. Okay. Well, in the, I think a good place to start would be with the, the police report. So the official version of the story um, as to when everything occurred, um, you've got the phone call from Rudin, and she says that after that she went to bed. And on, and then on record, um, she wakes around 3, 3.30, somewhere around that time, and that's when she becomes concerned and goes to look in the window. Now, that timing changes multiple times over the years. So in 1952, she tells 
the police it's 3.30 in the morning when she looks in the window. In 1963, for a documentary, she says 2 o'clock in the morning. In 1973, she tells the Ladies' Home Journal that it was midnight. Now, you've also got Sergeant Jack Clemens, who was the first police officer on the site, claiming that on the site that night, Marie told her, told him, rather, midnight. So you've got a lot of jumping around in the timeline there, and that's, we're talking about several hours between midnight being the earliest she's reported um, looking in Marilyn's window and 3.30 being the latest that she's reported it. So, so with this, I mean, there's a lot of discrepancy there, and there's a lot of reasons why those discrepancies, you know, have been filled in throughout the years. What do we know for sure? What is the fact of what we do know in terms of what we've already uncovered is that between 8 and 9 o'clock, Marilyn actually did die, right? So. Right. Um, with that, and I got a question for you in regards to this in terms of phone records. I know we've talked about this, but do we have the phone records for that last night or are those the ones that actually went missing? I've personally never seen the phone records for that night. Okay. And Gary, nothing in terms of phone Neither records? Have I. Okay. And are the phone records available the day before and the day after, but they're just not available that night? Do we know anything in regards to, you know, what is available or what has been available? Because to me, that just seems, because what I've heard is that the phone records went missing a couple of days later, but I'm not exactly sure, you know, what are the specifics of that? And I'm not sure how they were recorded because um, back then um, in 1962, toll calls um, would have been placed, I think, on index cards. So nothing was automated the way it is now. I've seen some transcripts, I, I, I believe, in, in um, Slatzer's book, which appear to be typed. So um, I don't know what the source material it is or how they were recorded. Yeah, that's that's interesting because if uh, you know um, the the official records seems like that would be really important to know exactly who she was talking to that night, and uh, you know now in regards to that though, there's records that show that Marilyn was supposedly talking to the justice house, ju- justice department, or calling the justice department. How is it that those records are there and yet that last day is not? Does anybody know that one? That question. It, it's a very good question, and, and, and that's, I think, therein lies, you know, the, the, the big mystery. The police reports do indicate that, that they were uh, going to investigate the records on both of the telephone numbers. But there's yeah, no follow-up report that was ever published indicating what the result of that was. All right, and then let's let's get into. We talked. I, I, I briefly uh, brought up the "Say Goodbye to the President" Anthony Summers documentary that uh, a lot of people, um, you know, have have regarded as uh, you know a wonderful documentary in a lot of ways. But Gary, you are also going to point out some specific things, you know, that we all need to look at as we as as a filmmaker, you know, whether they are coming up with a point of view and they want to have that point of view versus they're just revealing the facts as they they know them. So so explain what you explained to me uh, prior to the break, and I thought that was very interesting. Well, when I, I did the research for ICON, I, I played these tapes back repeatedly to understand the context of the question and then what her response was. And what I was noticing is that, that we never heard the context of the conversation or the question um, by Anthony Summers, who I believe was doing the interview, you hear a voiceover narration 
that, that leads you to what the question would be, and then it cuts to um, Murray's response. And, um, you know, the, the one thing that stood out for me um, was the comment about was Marilyn arrived, uh, alive when the doctor arrived? And um, you don't know the, the context of that because Mrs. Murray is saying, oh, yes, I know uh, I, she was alive because I was there. I was in, in the living room. But the way it's edited, it suggests that she found Marilyn alive. And when she called Dr. Greenson and he came to the home, um, she was still living at the time. And then that supports the rest of that documentary, documentary which goes into the ambulance being called. But, you, but the question could have been, you know, was Marilyn alive when the doctor came at, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon? You know, we don't, we don't hear the context. So she spliced in to support the theory that the documentary is uh, endorsing. So basically what you're saying is that uh, the way that they set it up is that Marilyn was alive, but you don't really know what the question is when, when they lead her to that. And so it keeps, it keeps going towards that, that uh, ability to then go off to you know, the ambulance, which we haven't even gotten into, and all the different areas that it starts to kind of move into in terms of its legs and arms and legs and other theories and conspiracies and everything else. So I think that's an important point. You know, not just with this film, but any film or anything that you are looking at as it relates to Marilyn is, are you know, do you have the person saying the question and is the person giving that answer? Because it's really easy, and I certainly know this in terms of the world of entertainment, to slant it the way that you want to slant it. And it's it's also easy for us. And I know something that we've all tried to do here on the Goodnight Marilyn radio show is to say, what is our opinion versus what is it we know to be fact? And that's not an easy thing to do because we all have opinions. We all have gut feelings. We all have these feelings of what has happened. But to break it down like we are, I think this is an important uh, point to make that even with something like that, that you're hearing Eunice Murray's own words, right? But you're not hearing the original source, which was what is the original question. Very good point, Gary. Let's and, bring and on. Furthermore, on that, yeah. you know, there's the, I think in the 2012 version of his book, Goddess, he, he talks about um, Mrs. Murray's interview and that when they were wrapping up and taking down the lights, she announces to them that why do I have to keep the secret anymore? Um, I'm ready to tell you the story. And we only hear that, though, from Summer's perspective, because when he shows us the documentary, you, you don't see that. That supposedly takes place off camera. And so I'm, I'm not really clear what part of that interview um, came after she allegedly said that, but there's no actual recording or documentation of her making that statement. We only hear it through um, the author's perspective. But and it has been it. repeated so frequently that I think anyone who's interested in Marilyn's death kind of says, oh, she even admitted to changing her story. But uh, I'm not aware of any clear documentation of her saying I'm about to um, shed the light truthfully on what happened. Well, and I think that's a really good point as well is, again, our own opinions, our own feelings of that she was hiding something, right, uh, versus the potential, you know, the, the reality of her actually saying those words. And I'm not saying that, you know, she didn't say that, but we don't know for sure whether or not she said, I'm, I'm hiding a secret. And I think that's something that, you know, we've, we've got to look at, especially on this show, uh, when we're looking at, you know, dispelling fact from fiction. I'd like to bring on Randall. 
Libero now, who is with us, who's our executive producer. He has some questions as well in terms of this this topic. Randall, hi. Glad to have you here today. Hi, everyone. Uh, listening on, on online right now. And uh, uh, yeah, I was... Um, uh, I had my first connection with Marilyn was a documentary television show that I made in uh, 1986 where I interviewed Robert Slatzer. Now, everyone has opinions about Slatzer. I spent a tremendous amount of time with the man, and my feeling about him as far as the way he relayed his story is that uh, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, a lot of people have you know, said things about him, but when uh, you know, I actually knew the guy, and I spent uh, a lot of time with him making the show. So um, I have a copy of his book here, published in 1974, The Life and Curious Death of Marilyn Monroe. And he's, he did an interview uh, with Eunice Murray in October of 1973. And there's actually a photograph of the book, in the book, with him, with Murray, with a tape recorder, with a microphone in his hand. So this interview did happen. And on page 230 of this book, I just it covers exactly the conversation that we're talking about right now. And I'd just like to read the two paragraphs where he talks specifically about when Eunice Murray first received the phone call from um, uh, Mickey Rudin. So this is from a, uh, this is the, trans- the, the verbiage, the transcription of that recording of what she said verbatim on the recording. On what the tape, year tape was recorder. this? This what is October of 1973. Okay. Okay. So it starts off page 230. It says, this call was from Mr. Rudin, her attorney, and he asked if Marilyn was at home. I said that she was, and he asked if she was all right. I said she was, as far as I knew. I asked him if I should call her. He said, oh, no, don't bother. Now, Rudin says, oh, no, don't bother. Okay? He, it was as casual as all that. There were no clues looking back over that night or anything that alerted me then. There wasn't anything. All right? So that's that's her first impression of when she receives a phone call. So she's very nonchalant about it. You know, Bruton, her attorney calls and says, go look, and he says, yeah, it really wasn't anything at all. That doesn't make any sense to me. All right, now I'm continuing her, her words. Then I went back to the bedroom through the bathroom and fell asleep. And I didn't awaken until during that night, but I don't know what time it was. There she's go about being vague about the timeline, okay? Now I'll go back to what she says. I came out into the hallway, and I saw the telephone cord under Marilyn's door, and that was the only clue I needed then, for I knew something was terribly wrong. Now, first of all, why would a telephone cord under a door alert her that something's wrong if she knew Marilyn was in there and talked on the telephone all the time? Again, doesn't make any sense to me. I didn't even, now I'm back to her words, I didn't even stop to try the door. I called Dr. Greenson, and and he asked, have you tried the door, and have you called to her? Then I went back while Dr. Greenson was still waiting on the phone, tried the door, and found it locked. There was no answer. Then I went outside to see if I could see into the window, and there was a light on in her room. Another thing that wouldn't be if she had fallen asleep normally, for this would not have happened. Then I had to go into the house and find somebody to extend my reach so I could draw the curtain back because of the deep window sill. And then I saw her lying on the bed. And that ends what she says in the book. Okay. Gary, comment? Well, um, I think I might be able to shed some light into the the cord. Um, Apparently, Marilyn had a nighttime ritual where she um, put the, back then there were no cell phones, and these these phones were on very long um, cords so that she could move about the house 
um, take a phone call in her bedroom, but then put the phone back in the room where its jack was located. So since she had sleep disturbances, apparently she round up the two extensions and would put them in a spare bedroom and cover them so that the, they would be muffled if the phone rang. Um, she didn't unplug them, but she put the phones to bed, so to speak. <laughs> so Mrs. Murray um, is the one who claims that that was the, the, the nightly routine, and so when she found the cord under the, under the bed, under the door, rather, um, it, it alerted her that, that Marilyn's nighttime ritual wasn't followed. Something must be amiss. Okay. Well, and, and Leslie, do you want to add something to that? I do. Um, the phone cord, interestingly, is that story first comes up really in 1973. In both 1962 and the police report, she says it was actually the light under the door that she saw that concerned her. And she said the same thing in 1963 um, when she was interviewed. Uh, so twice she says it's the light under the door, and then in 1973 she changes this story to the phone cord being under the door. And that may have been in response to some claims that the carpet was too thick for her to have seen the light. So there's another argument there, where things get convoluted again, um, uh, some people have stated that the carpet in the room that was uh, recently installed was so thick that she could not possibly have seen a light under the door, and that maybe she was mistaken and it was the phone cord that concerned her. Or it's possible that she saw both um, all three times, you know, she, she tells the story. Possibly she's just, you know, bringing up one part of the story there. Um, but there's a lot more confusion there when you add to what actually caused her to be concerned. All right, we're going to have to take a short break. We're talking about Eunice Murray at the time that she was concerned around Marilyn's death. Uh, we'll uh, continue this lively conversation when we return. You're listening to Goodnight Marilyn Radio, and we'll be back in just a moment. Marilyn Monroe had lived in seclusion in her rambling Spanish-style bungalow in Los Angeles. Last night, her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, noticed that Miss Monroe still had her bedroom light on at midnight. At 3 a.m., Miss Murray found the light still on, the door locked. A physician, hurriedly summoned, broke a bedroom window, found the actress dead in bed, holding in one hand a telephone which was off its hook, with an empty bottle of sleeping pills nearby. No notes were found, but since the actress was known to have been depressed of late, a deputy coroner listed the death as an apparent suicide, pending completion of an autopsy. Police say they are not so sure that death may have been accidental. For the famous actress, it was an inauspicious end, her home sealed by the coroner, for an actress renowned as a symbol of everything glamorous in a woman. Her slim body covered with a simple blue cotton blanket and carried to a mortuary in the back of a station wagon. It was the end of a career which, for all the fame she acquired, apparently brought no real lasting happiness to Miss Monroe. To the end, she was known as Hollywood's best and least understood personality. Math Genius Radio presents Marilyn. For those of us who can't get enough of Marilyn Monroe, especially her iconic musical performances, Mad Genius Radio has expertly curated a genre of hundreds of tracks performed by Marilyn and friends. It is the quintessential collection of music for a journey of glamour, grace, and allure. Listen for free only on Mad Genius Radio. Available in the App Store, Google Play, and desktop at madgeniusradio.com. Hi, my name is Nina Bosky, and I'm the lead producer on the feature film Goodnight Marilyn. Do you have what it takes to play the iconic Marilyn Monroe? Well, I have our director here with us, Drew Ann Rosenberg, and she's going to tell you exactly what she's looking for. Drew? 
Well, first of all, we're looking for somebody with great acting chops. And then we want a Marilyn who can bring that movie star sex symbol magnetism to screen. But there's another side of Marilyn that we want to find. We want to find the shy, sensitive, um, very personal and, and twinkly girl who everybody loved on a private level as well. So if you have those two sides to you, you might just be our Marilyn. So if you have what it takes or you know somebody that does, go to goodnightmarilyn.com and find out all the details. That's goodnightmarilyn.com and hopefully we'll see you in the movies. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to MarilynLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. So, of course, I was alarmed. I called Dr. Greenson. I went around to the front of the house before Dr. Greenson arrived. Turning the curtains back, I saw Marilyn lying on the bed nude and I was just alarmed Hi everybody you're listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio I'm Nina Bosky with me is Leslie Kasperowitz immortal Maryland since 1998 has been studying her for over 25 years we have Gary Vitaco Robles icon lifetimes and films of Marilyn Monroe volumes 1 and 2 you can get it on amazon.com and with us who jumped on the phone with us our executive producer Randall Libero he had to join the conversation cuz it was just getting uh you know uh you know there's a lot of unanswered questions here so right before before the break, we started talking about, you know, where, you know, Eunice Murray, uh, what exactly happened during that time. And Gary, you wanted to add something that I thought was, was very interesting to this, this conversation. Well, the, the timeline for finding Marilyn, or at least uh, discovering that she had died, shifts in the mid-80s when Anthony Summer finds uh, Natalie Trundy Jacobs. And she um, was married to uh, Arthur P. Jacobs, who was the owner of the PR company that managed Marilyn. And she tells a story um, in the mid-'80s that she and her fiancé at the time, Arthur P. Jacobs, were at the Hollywood Bowl with Mervyn Leroy and his wife, uh, the director, and um, and, and for a Ferrante and Teicher dueling piano concert. And midway through that performance, which she claims could have been anywhere between 9.30 and 10 o'clock, uh, a messenger came to their private box and, and said that there was a phone call that there was an incident at Marilyn's house. And um, Natalie has said it consistently in multiple documentaries that um, Arthur disappeared for a few days and she didn't hear from him, and he would never fully disclose to her what he discovered um, the only words she says he used was that the, the situation at Marilyn's house was horrendous. 
and she uses the word horrendous to describe whatever a situation he was called into. And she does not know where that call originated. Okay, so we have from 8.30 p.m., Mickey Rudin contacts Mrs. Murray to this kind of in-between hour, somewhere between 9.30 and 10.30, that Arthur Jacobs was contacted. Do we know who contacted Arthur Jacobs at the Hollywood Bowl? Do we know who that person was that did uh, Natalie ever say, or does anybody ever know? She told Donald Spotto that uh, Rudin had been called by Greenson from Maryland's home and that it was Rudin who contacted Jacobs um, at the Hollywood Bowl. However, there's also another version of the story in which she says that Pat Newcomb may have been the person who called, um, but I don't actually think she knew. I think she may have been guessing. Um, she, all she knew was that there was a phone call and Jacobs left. Um, it may be that she was never actually told who made the phone call, but that she was kind of putting in names that seem to make sense to her. Okay. So when we start to look at this, you know, from 8.30 to 10.30 at night, there's a lot of different things that are starting to happen here. And so we have the official version, which is 3.30 in the morning. Then it goes back to 2 o'clock in the morning, right, Leslie? Then it goes back to midnight. And now we have, you know, coming back and, you know, with uh, Natalie Trendy and Arthur Jacobs, the, the potentiality of actually people knowing that something horrendous happened to Marilyn somewhere somewhere between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m. Anybody want to comment on that to add? Well, um, if that story is true, and I, you know, again, we're into speculation here. She's the only person who has ever, that I know of, reported knowing about Marilyn's death um, prior to uh, the later times that are reported. Um but if that's true, that it really changes the timeline of the night entirely. You've got now many hours in which it is known that Marilyn has passed away, um, but we're not exactly sure what's going on at her home at this point in time. So they, like, it really does change the timeline, and it, it, it's one of those things that when it first came out, I don't think it was quite the bombshell it should have been um, because there were so many other bombshells in Summer's book. Um, <laughs> but yeah. it, it really, if it's true, it, it changes the timeline entirely for the night. Yeah, and it and doesn't Gary- tell us much because we, we don't know if um, when Jacobs became aware, if um, Engelberg and Greenson uh, were notified, and they would have known any sooner. I know that um, Engelberg was interviewed in 82, and um, it was uh, brought up to him um, if, if it was at midnight that he became aware of Marilyn's death, and he vehemently denied that that was the case, but in the same tapes, he also denied ever prescribing her chloral hydrate, and we know that that is, is not true, and he was adamant about that as well. Well, and let me just say this, guys. If 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 the ten thirty time frame is true, right? Nobody wants to cop to it because now it moves from three thirty in the morning to four thirty in the morning, where the cops are being called, and now we're at ten thirty to four thirty in the morning. What in the world is going on that it's taking that long for the cops to be called? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, you know, no doctor is going to want to admit to that given the circumstances, right? Right. You know, um, so, so, uh, uh, Randall, are you still yeah, with us on yeah, the phone? I, see, that's, that's where this doesn't make any sense to me. If, if you, if we choose to believe 
um, Eunice Murray's story, okay, and let's say it's maybe around 9 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock, okay? So she calls Greenson. Greenson comes over. They find Marilyn there. And Greenson, obviously, is going to call Engelberg, okay? So Engelberg's coming over. Now, think of the discussion. You've got a doctor, a psychiatrist, Eunice Murray. Now, if she's still alive, they're going to call an ambulance if she's not all the way dead. If she is dead, they're going to call, like, the mortician, okay? You pick up the body. But then they're thinking... You know, should we, you know, maybe because who she is that we should call the police if it's a suicide. So these guys think about what's going through their head if we choose to believe this story in this timeline because somebody gets a hold of the guy who goes talks to Arthur Jacobs. So this is where I'm trying to figure out the normal procedure for a doctor, what his legal obligations are in terms of if there is a death what he is supposed to do, you know, so he doesn't lose his license. So this is where my head's at, you know, looking at this as an actuality. Gary? Well, you know, I'm thinking about uh, Jacobs being called, if that indeed is true. And, you know, this is going back many years ago, and um, it sounds like in many instances in this case, protocol is not followed. And you know, I think there's a lot of legends surrounding this time period where public relation people were contacted before anyone else was, and they came in and they protected the image of the star that they were promoting. And so, you know, I've always wondered, you know, that when Marilyn's found with her hand on the phone, if that was something that was staged, if that was a public relations um, image that they wanted to send to her, if they, if they discovered she died apparently by um, sleeping pills, that they would want it to appear as if she changed her mind or really wanting to spin it to somehow protect her image that she didn't really want to die. You know, this is all, this is all speculation. And, and we know that at this time in history, those kinds of things um, did go on. And studios actually use their own PR people sometimes to come to scenes before the authorities were called. So, you know, it's complete speculation at this point. But um, considering old Hollywood, um, it's a possibility. So let's talk about the phone, because you keep on hearing, you know, she had a phone in her hand and then there's no phone. What's the reality of the phone situation? Where is the phone? Because you see it sometimes and sometimes you don't in in those snapshots. What's going on with the phone? Well, the police report by um, Robert Byron says that when Greenson found her, um, and I'm reading this right now, with the telephone receiver in one hand and lying on her stomach. So um, this is what uh, Byron uh, indicates in the first report, not the follow-up report, but the first report. Okay, and Leslie, any comment on that? Because we do have indication that the body was moved. Is that correct? Uh, there's some indication of that, um, and we get that from the faint lividity that's noted on the autopsy um, on Marilyn's back, uh, which, uh, again, again, going back to Mary Jane's interview with uh, Dr. Wecht, he states that that's likely because she was rolled over to check for vital signs. What I find interesting, though, is that if they're going to roll her over to check for vital signs, why move her back? Why put her back in the position in which she was found? I mean, at this point, unless you're staging the scene, what's what's the point of you know, flipping her back over if you had a perfectly valid reason for having moved the body in the first place. So uh, the phone has always been 
kind of a, an issue of contention. And uh, Greenson does say that he removed it from her hand. There's also a version of the story in which this phone is said to have been underneath her body. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where there's so many different stories, it's hard to say for sure. Yeah, I just, I find that just, you know, because when you look at some of the pictures, you, you don't even see where the phone is, you know, so. No, are, and certainly do, in the photograph that it was released in recent years of Marilyn in the bed, you don't see a telephone in her hand at that point. So. Yeah. And that's a yeah. very strange picture. When I've looked at that picture, there's there's something about it that kind of suggests to me that it that it might be photoshopped. I don't know how the rest of the panel feels about that picture. Um yeah, those technical capabilities were, they could be done at that time in the early 60s. But it, wow. it might be a, a modern photoshopping on old source material. So That's so, interesting. I've never considered that, that it may have been altered in any way. So, Randall, do you have anything else you want to add? Because we're getting close to the end of this uh, week's show. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, it's still, it's, uh, I would think if you've got, Two guys, you know, three people discussing, and, um, uh, you know, if there was no one else at the house at that time, I don't know what, what you guys have mentioned about, uh, you know, um, Norman Jeffries, which is uh, her, uh, Eunice Murray's son-in-law, if he was even there, which could have been a fourth person or later. But, you know, this discussion is, if you're going to call, who are you going to call? You know, the police, the coroner, the, you know, the... the who's going to be the first phone call? And if, you know, if Jacobs is get, getting there and he's the, the PR people are called, would Engelberg or Eunice Murray even think to calling PR people? That would not be in their, in their heads, first of all. I mean, probably Eunice Murray would have said, call, call their lawyer because he just called. Just think of what would people be thinking in a situation like this. Put yourself in the situation. All right. What would you do? Okay, so so what we're going to do is what we've kind of found today is that there's this 1030 hour that is, is getting uh, much more complicated. As you know, it starts to get very complicated. Now we're in speculation because there's a lot of speculation. What I'd like to do next week, guys, is let's break down the official version and what we know to be true versus what we still have speculation on. And let's start getting into the different theories as it starts opening up this this whole you know door of what was going on if indeed from 10.30 to 4.30 there was more stuff going on with Marilyn potentially being alive, being dead, being moved, etc. It gets a lot more complicated and we have a lot more to go. Gary, uh, just if you can, and just uh, a sentence or two, uh, what would you like to leave us with? Well, you know, there, I'm, I'm thinking the doctor's, really should have been um, consulting prior her to her death, but it, it might have been when they discovered the body that they realized all the contraindicated medications that were now on the nightstand that Engelberg was, was prescribing because that, that is such a huge part of, of, of this case, the, the, the maltreatment medically. The all, right. all right, Leslie, just a few seconds. Anything you want to leave us uh, with? Yeah, I just wanted to um, say, yeah, who you would call first. There are a few small clues out there. Um, Engelberg is known to have told the police on the scene that they had to get the studio's permission to call the police. Um, and then he also later said that they considered just calling the mortician, as that's what you would normally do, but decided that this particular case should involve the police. 
All right. Well, this wraps up another week's show. Next week, we'll be back with my same guest, Gary Vitaco Robles, Leslie Spirowitz, and potentially even Randall Libero might jump in, and you are invited as well. I'm Nina Bosky for Goodnight Maryland Radio, and remember, never stop dreaming. Thank you for joining us for today's show. Good Night Maryland Radio with Nina Bosky can be heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be sure to tune in again next week.